0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's baha dot or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Like other folks I interview, Lars Pattenod has more to tell than one hour can allow. In this second telephone interview segment, Lars describes his journey from the point at which he became a Baha'i at the Baha'i Academy called LandEgg in Switzerland. He describes his involvement with the World Summit for Sustainable Development in South Africa and his work for the non-governmental organization called Education for Peace in Bosnia. Let's continue with Lars' story.
1: After becoming a Baha'i, so I was at LandEgg, I wanted to get involved in activities as fast as possible. I had a, a great opportunity come up soon after becoming a Baha'i. Uh, the the uh, summer of 2002, there was a um, World Summit for Sustainable Development going on in Johannesburg, South Africa. And prior to the summit, uh, a member of the United Nations Environmental Program was speaking at LandEgg, and uh, he was also a Baha'i. When I found out he was coming, I you know, I made sure that I would uh, get to meet him and talk to him about uh, the summit and see if there was any role for me there sure enough he said there was and uh, took me along uh, this is this was uh, dr arthur Dahl mm-hmm. uh, who worked out of geneva switzerland and he had me contact the baha'is of south africa and to ask them if they needed anything done for the, the summit which they did
0: were the baha'is sponsoring the summit or what or were they just going to help out
1: the, no, no, no. The, it, this, this was this is a United Nations event. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was actually the largest world summit ever held up until that date. Every country in the world was represented, mostly by the heads of state. So you know, there's kings and presidents and prime ministers and all that. And it, this was hosted by the U.N. Uh-huh. and uh, the third actual what was called the Earth Summit. The first was held in I think in 1972 in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, to address. Issues into the environment and sustainable development, and then I don't know if there was one held in the eighties, but then there was one in in ninety two in Brazil, and then then this was going on Johannesburg two thousand two. So every ten years, and in eighty two there must have been one, but I'm not aware of where it was. I went down with Doctor Dahl. He was working for the UN, which is his primary was his primary job. He's now retired. He was also the head of a non government organization called. IEF, which is International Environment Forum, or Baha'i-inspired environment organization Mm -hmm. that works on sustainable development and responsible environmental issues. And I I got involved with the group and and became a delegate for the group for the uh, summit, and I also was helping him with whatever he was doing there. And there there was a number of NGOs, and then there was also the Baha'i International Community. And what's that? Uh, The Baha'i International Community is the community outreach of the Baha'i World Center. It's the Baha'i liaison with the United Nations and kind of with the world, like the non governmental organization of the Baha'i Faith that deals with the United Nations. They came with a a message or a booklet uh, titled Religion and Development at the Crossroads Convergence or Divergence. This basically was a document. It was sanctioned by the Universal House of Justice, which is the overseeing body of the the World Baha'i community. It was basically an open letter to the United Nations and to the leaders of the world, it talked about sustainable development in the future and the United Nations role, and it said it, it asked the United Nations and the world leaders to look more to religion, religious organizations for guidance in sustainable development. and also, it talked to the religions of the world and, and asked the leaders of religions and religious organizations to rein in or to keep a closer watch over people in their religious organizations, to, to cull fanaticism, to, to speak out against fanaticism, to speak out against religious activity that was damaging towards others or towards the environment. It really, it, you know, it spoke to the I guess, secular world saying, you know, you need to include religion. And then it spoke to the religious world saying you need to be more responsible. And this was a message that the Baha'i trash community asked the Baha'is that were present at the summit to help distribute. So all the Baha'i communities that were down in South Africa got together at the National Center in Johannesburg, and we discussed the message, and everyone got packets to try to get these packets into the hands of heads of state and to important members of the United Nations and to as and much of the news media as possible. And it was really a great experience working with all these Baha'is. And, you know, everyone just gave everything, everything they had. And the head of the Baha'i International Community that was at the summit, his name is Peter Adrians from the United States, and it was the first time I'd ever worked for someone who was so transparent in, in their... Motives and their activities. I'd never worked for Baha'i before, and you know this is the first experience with a kind of seeing behind action uh, or Baha'i activities in action. And it, it was a whole different experience than any other work experience I had. As I said, Peter was just completely transparent, and everyone else was completely transparent, and everyone's motives were very clear. And, and it, it's such a wonderful experience to work with people that aren't hiding anything or don't have hidden agendas and secondary agendas. It was just a wonderful experience to be surrounded by all these Baha'is, and we're all just trying to get this message out, and and it was just a fantastic experience down there. And I got to meet, of course, many more Baha'is from around the world, Baha'is who have been working in in international relations and international issues for decades. It was was a real eye-opener to see uh, the Baha'i principles put into uh, action in the real world.
0: How long was the summit?
1: The summit was. I think it was ten days long. I, I I was there for a month.
0: And why were you there for a month?
1: Well, I, I came down early to oh, help okay. out with the preparations, mm-hmm. and then I stayed a, a couple days longer to to just visit the country. And I had also had um, had some friends in Botswana, and I visited, went up there to visit uh, for a short while. And actually, got to meet some Baha'is there. It was re- it was really wonderful experience.
0: So it happened after South Africa.
1: After South Africa, I went back to LandEgg to uh, finish up my degree, and uh, I also started to work for an organization called Education for Peace, which was based out of LandEgg. Uh, the president of LandEgg started the organization, uh, Dr. Hossein Dinesh. And this organization, though based out of Switzerland, was working in the Balkans, in Bosnia Herzegovina. The, the history of Bosnia is incredibly. Complicated as, as anyone who's looked at that region or, or tried to study it or anything like that uh, the since the war in, in in Yugoslavia, the country was split up into three major factions, so every town, village, and city in Bosnia, Herzegovina has kind of tripartite system where they have a Serbian representative, a Croatian representative, and a, a bosniak representative, Bosniaks being Muslim. Serbians being Orthodox Christian, and the Croatians being Catholic. And a lot of the cities and towns had three of everything, three administrators, three fire stations, three police stations, three school systems. And this was all drawn out by the Dayton Peace Accord. It was a very, it is a very ineffective system. The money to run all these systems is just, it's out of hand and now with the world attention being moved to Afghanistan and Iraq um, and Sudan and and some other countries that are experiencing current problems you know the current issues we see on CNN that's where a lot of international funds go to and the the money that was originally earmarked for former Yugoslavia it's it's drying up very quickly and the United Nations and Organization for Security and Cooperation of Europe which is the OSCE they had issued a mandate to Bosnia-Herzegovina, that they needed to end their split systems. The, the country couldn't afford it anymore, so each town, city, and area had to take their three of everything and make it one.
0: What year was that?
1: This is 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. when I was there. Okay. The work that had been done up until this point in trying to get these communities to come together was quite incomplete. The difficulties from the war and the, the, the hatred and the underlying problems have not been resolved and, and still aren't resolved. People have huge problems. There's still so much turmoil between the communities. So therefore, the UN was looking for organizations to try to help in this process of, of bringing together these three entities in each town and city. And Education for Peace got the job of developing a curriculum to implement into the school systems, a curriculum that incorporated all three of the communities. Because, as, as I said, there's, in each city they had three school systems, and each school system was teaching their own particular take of everything, and especially history. History was very different if you went to a Croatian school, or if you went to a Serbian school, or if you went to a Bosniak school. It was taught from their point of view and usually, unfortunately, vilified the other communities. So Education for Peace came in, and using the principles of the Baha'i Faith, specifically the oneness of humankind, the organization worked to create a curriculum that would help these communities work together. When we went there, we we didn't really have a curriculum laid out. We decided that the best way to go in was to go into the cities, uh, particular cities. I was working in the city of Mostar, and to enter the schools and to meet the teachers, meet the students, and try to get a feel of what, the, what was going on in each of the cities or each of the communities that we were implementing this program, and then to help to have the teachers themselves create these curriculums. So we'd, we'd go into each school system and try to find teachers that were particularly interested in trying to work together with the other communities and ask them to join a board to create this curriculum. So each city we'd go into the Croatian school, the Serbian school, the Bosnian school, and, and try to get two or three professors from each school, meet, have them all meet together. And this was very interesting. Since the war, a lot of these teachers have never seen each other or talked with each other. The war created, it, it was incredible what happened in these cities. I'll talk specifically about Mostar, because it was the city I was living in and the city I can best describe. The city of Mostar is mostly Croatian and, and Bojnac, which is Catholic and, and Muslim. was a small Serbian population there as well. And this city had this beautiful city that has a river running right through it. And the city had one of the highest intermarriage rate of all Bosnia, all Bosnia-Herzegovina. It was 72% intermarriage. And when this war took place, it tore families apart, tore friends apart, and now... You have one community, the Bozniaks, living on one side of the river and the Croatians living on the other side of the river. And these people who grew up together, knew each other, were friends, were family members, hadn't seen each other for the last ten years. So we had one teacher on one side and another on another side who were best friends before the war but hadn't seen each other since the war. And now we're bringing them together to try to work out a curriculum that could work for the whole city And they've seen each other for the first time, and it was unbelievable. And these people are living 100 yards apart, but hadn't seen each other in 10 years. It was was unbelievable. And the reunions were incredible. These people were crying and hugging each other. And it was just, it's really hard to describe Mm. how emotionally, how overwhelming the situation was when we brought these people together. Because I read a lot about the issue in the Balkans and studied a lot of what I was going to be doing before I got to Bosnia. But to actually see the physical reality, and the social reality of the war, to see with these people who have gone through this and then to see them reuniting and, and asking each other what happened, what's been happening in the last 10 years, what, who in your family you know, have you lost or what's been going on, it was, it was incredible. And the desire of most of these people, most of these professors, to, to create this curriculum they they wanted it they wanted to be together they didn't want this divided city anymore so it made our job <laughs> in in some senses so much easier it was it was almost as if no one had yet given the opportunity to create this new system it seemed to me that the um, Dayton, the peace accord kind of made these separate situations and, and it it kind of reinforced it with the bureaucratic system and and what not And when the individuals who were living there finally had a chance to come together to try to create a a new system, they were very eager to reunite their city, to reunite their friendships and families. And and especially, we also included students as well in trying to create this curriculum. And the students were even more eager. I think young people are (laughs) similar the world over. They just want to have a good time and meet as many different people as possible and There was a lot of excitement for the students to meet the other students from the other schools, and 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 this again is amazing that these students would live hundred yards, two hundred yards apart their whole lives. You know, seventeen year olds, sixteen year olds, and they'd never met each other, never seen each other because they hadn't crossed this border in the city. A Croatian student would come to me and say, "Oh, I met this cute boy, and you know, from the from the other community, and." uh, you know, I'd love to call him, and, and, and it was so sweet to see a lot of the prejudices that were espoused in the popular media, and it was just an amazing experience, and what we did as, as the facilitators of this it was basically just to bring them together and, you know, kind of say, you know, we need to create a new curriculum that speaks to everyone, and we need your help to do it. It was just amazing. Everyone pulled together and... As I said, the, the professors and the students were very eager to partake in this, this process. And all we did was, we just started with, okay, we're all one. Let's start from that point of view and work forward. And the process, it was just working incredibly well, uh, better than anyone in the United Nations or in the Organization for Security and Cooperation of Europe, which is, again, it's the OSCE, which is another overseeing body in Bosnia. Herzegovina. They, they couldn't believe how well this process was working. Because there was other bodies there trying to unite the police stations, fire stations, all these divided bodies in each city. They, were, they, were, they had all these different organizations trying to bring these things together, and no one was having success like we were having success.
0: And what would you say accounted for that?
1: You know, being a Baha'i, the belief in unity is not philosophical. Allah said it's, unity is a law as much as gravity is a law. We need to come together. And if we are given the opportunity to come together, we go to it. We, we come together. And I think that is the base for Education of Peace, is that unity is a real force in the world. And given the opportunity, people will unite. And And that's basically all we were doing. We were just opening up the opportunity for these students and teachers to unite. And we weren't pushing it down anyone's throat. As I said, the organization had uh, Dr. Dinesh, he... he told us before we went, you know, we're not teaching anyone anything. We're, we're, not, we're not going in there and, and telling people how to do things. We're going there to listen, and we're just kind of giving a little bit of direction and, and stating our, our hopes and desires and, and our belief about unity, and, and then letting the process go from there, letting the students and the, and the professors kind of work it out, work out the details. A lot of other organizations that came in came in with pre-designed programs that the organizations had that the people there had to fit into whereas we, we tried to let the teachers and the students create something that they could you know fit into you know they would create their own curriculum and their own ideas you know there were a lot of the students and teachers talked about the, their experience since the war with so many different international organizations coming in and telling people what to do you know this is how you have peace you make your community better and everyone was so sick of being told what to do, and I think we we really really tried not to tell anyone what to do and and, and we didn't know what to do that was that was part of the part of the thing the, everyone working for education for peace was <laughs> you know thirty or younger and and had very little experience in the world, especially in international bodies and um, and I think that was a strength as opposed to a lot of people would see that I, actually we when we first got there we we met with you know a lot of the premiers and you know a lot of the bigger states, people who had been in the country and and people who had dealt with a lot of international issues for decades and decades, and they saw our group and they said, oh my goodness, you know, (laughs) it's a bunch of kids coming in here to take on this huge job. And and they said, well, you know, I guess we'll let them try it. And and, uh, I think our inexperience really was good in a way because we didn't assume anything and we didn't feel like we knew better because we really didn't all we knew was that we believed in the oneness of mankind and we believed in unity and and we that's basically our only was our only guiding light we basically just tried anything as long as the discussions and the activities pointed towards unity that was our only goal and that was all we laid out for the students and, and teachers and they, they said oh that's something you know we can work within that perimeter <laughs> as i said we just let them work it out mm. uh, not that it is or is becoming a perfect fix but it's, it was It's working very well in, in bosnia Herzegovina and education for peace has been asked by the government of South Africa to look at their curriculums and by some uh, cities in the United States so it, extremely successful mm. um, and it continues to be successful over there
0: so how long were you there?
1: I was working for them for education for peace for a little about a year mm-hmm. My contract was coming up in I think it was uh, September of 2003, Dr. Dinesh, the president of the organization, offered me to to continue on. I was seriously considering it. However, when I was in South Africa, I had sent a letter to an old friend uh, back in the United States, a woman who I'd met a decade earlier. And from my experience in South Africa on to Bosnia, we would continued corresponding with each other through letters and email. And when my contract came up, I took a vacation to go back to the United States and during that time I went and visited this person and we decided to get married mm-hmm. earlier in our first interview I spoke about working locally at a school and feeling like I wasn't able to really make a huge difference and I was saying that that was one of my reasons for going to graduate school is to try to get in a position where I could influence policy and change things in a grander way than just one child at a time, which I felt I was unable to do uh, to the child's satisfaction because of my lack of training. And so here I am in this position in Bosnia-Herzegovina doing exactly what I wanted to do and and what do I do, but I leave it to get married. (laughs) It seems odd that I made that choice to some people. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know my father was, was extremely surprised because he knew that I'd been working for many years to get to where I was in Bosnia-Herzegovina, to have a position like that. And the opportunities there were just, um, it was wide open. There was, there was many opportunities uh, for growth. And, and my father, among other people, could, just couldn't understand how I'd leave that to get married. The Baha'i faith talks about the family as the basis for our world unity of a family and the the dynamic of a family is the building block of of the whole world. I felt like not only did I I want to marry my wife because I loved her, but I also needed the experience of being in a family and of creating a family and understanding unity in a new way to really, you know, there's one thing to work with others to create unity, but it's another to, to do it yourself. In Bosnia, Herzegovina, I could step out of things. I could leave. I could take a vacation. When you're married, you can't take a vacation from it. You can't, you can't just walk out the door. Right. Well, you can, and a lot of people do, I guess, in the United States and around the world. But, right. but that's not what I believe marriage was, and that's not what my wife believes marriage is. And, and uh, I think behind most Baha'is, and we're told, you know, we're, we like to believe that we, when we get married, it's it's for for eternity, and it's a commitment we're making that is very serious, and and. Um, And this is something that I felt I was ready for, to make this commitment I wanted to. And and I I felt like it was the right right choice. And also, becoming a Baha'i, I I got to learn a new way of seeing how to make a difference in the world. The Baha'i administrative order, which is the way the Baha'i world is set up logistically, is absolutely incredible. For anyone studying government or policy or democracy, if you've never heard or seen the high administrative order in action, it, it should be studied. It's just it's just amazingly representative. It is an amazing framework for administrating towards to the world. When I started looking at this, the administrative order, which I will explain really quickly, is uh, there's the Universal House of Justice, which I've mentioned before, which is the overseeing body of the entire high world community. And then from there there's the National Spiritual Assembly, which not every nation yet, but Every nation aspires to have this organization that oversees the the national activities of the Baha'is, and then below the National Spiritual Assembly in some countries,